You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Antonio, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. The English people have traditionally had a fraught relationship with the institution of monarchy. It's legitimately surprising to me that they're one of the few nations that still has a monarchist element in their government. There has always been this stubbornly independent streak in the English people. They've always told stories of anti-authoritarian rebels sticking it to the men in power, Robin Hood is an excellent example of that attitude. Today we're going to be talking about the English monarchy and how it relates to that independent streak and anti-monarchism in general in England. And fair warning, there aren't any pirates today, just history with a dash of mythology, but Robin Hood is actually a very good place to start. This is episode 114, The English Monarchy Problem. The tale of Robin Hood is relatively simple. Robin Hood and his band of merry men live in Sherwood Forest where they rob from the rich and give to the poor. We've all heard that story, and it seems so quaint today, probably because we've lived with it for centuries, but it's a radical fable. Certainly the kind of fable that the rich would have hated. You can almost hear the Duke of York screaming about the evils of wealth redistribution. But why did Robin Hood steal from the rich and give to the poor in the first place? The myth tells us of the Sheriff of Nottingham and his exploitative taxation. Of course, the Sheriff's taxation wasn't done on his own authority. It was done under the authority of the evil Prince John. So let's look at that story from a historical perspective. The identity of Robin Hood himself is impossible to pin down historically. Many have tried and failed to do so. But everything else is a lot easier. Sherwood Forest and Nottingham are real places in Nottinghamshire. And Robin Hood might not be real, but the Sheriff of Nottingham and Prince John were real people. Nottingham Castle was a stronghold built in central England, built by the Normans about a century before the tale of Robin Hood. And it's an important defensive fortification for the Normans in England. So let me rewind just a bit and talk about early Norman royal politics. William I, William the Conqueror, was the Duke of Normandy in northern France when he sailed over to England to claim the throne. It was William who oversaw the construction of Nottingham Castle, among many others. The Normans brought castle technology to England. William's son, William's successor, Henry I, died with no legitimate male heir still living. So Henry named his daughter Matilda as his heir. However, Henry's nephew invaded to claim the English throne. This resulted in a civil war called the Anarchy. 
During that conflict, Matilda captured Nottingham Castle, among many others. She eventually would come out on top in the anarchy, sort of. Henry's nephew stayed on the throne until he died, but Matilda was a powerful leader, called the Lady of the English, however, never called Queen of England, but both agreed that her son would be the designated heir to the throne, and that secured the peace. But take note of this. Matilda was never Queen of England, not uncontested at least, but she was crowned Queen at one point. She was called Empress. She was a woman of power in England. This was way out of the ordinary for 12th century Europe. France would ban this kind of behavior entirely, and it would cause huge dynastic problems down the line, but England would go on to have two queens back-to-back in the Tudor era, not to mention the current English monarch and a number of other queens. The Empress Matilda set a precedent in English monarchical law, or maybe an English monarchical custom, The best claim to the throne lied through the daughter, and even though she never held the throne in her lifetime, Matilda was the chosen leader of half of England. The English royal line would continue on through her children. She was, in all but name, the Queen of England, in a time when queens, at least queens without a king to tell them what to do, when they were unheard of. It did help, however, that the Empress Matilda brought powerful allies and lands to the crown through her husband, and passed them on to her heir. Matilda's husband was Geoffrey Plantagenet, Duke of Anjou. He commanded Anjou and Aquitaine, which comprises nearly a third of modern-day France. Matilda and Geoffrey's son ascended the throne and became Henry II, King of England, Duke of Normandy and Aquitaine, Count of Anjou, Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, Breaker of Chains, and Mother of Dragons. He had a huge list of titles, much larger than any English king had had before him. Henry II was the great-grandson of William I, of the Conqueror, and he was heir to that Norman dynasty, of England and Normandy. However, he was now the first king of the dynasty known as the Angevin, or Plantagenet dynasty. They were called Angevin because of their lands in Anjou, and Plantagenet because of his father's house's name. Through his mother's line, he ruled England and Normandy. Through his father's, he ruled the western half of France. Through conquest, he claimed parts of Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. This was the dawn of the modern English monarchy. And that sentiment that we began today's episode with, that anti-monarchist trend in the minds of the English, I think that started here. Well, you know, it probably started with William I, but I think it solidified here, became part of the English character here. Imagine a foreign despot who ruled from their seat in France. They didn't speak English, they rarely visited England in the first place, and they didn't give anything to your country. Instead, they built castles filled with troops to put down rebellions, and they imposed harsh taxes. How would you feel about that foreign despot? That was the sentiment of the entire population of England. And not just the serfs, Oh, yeah, by the way, there are serfs now. There wasn't really feudalism before, not traditional European feudalism in England, but now there is. Do you have a problem with that? Don't like it when the authorities take your land and make you a slave? Well, just take the authorities to court, no problem, except that court proceedings are now overseen by foreigners who also don't speak English and don't have an interpreter. 
Don't speak French? Well, I guess you're out of luck. Get back to the field, you peasant. But it wasn't just the peasants in this case. The gentry, the old Anglo-Saxon English aristocracy, was really displeased with things, too. They now owed insane taxes, and if they were late on those taxes, or, you know, balked at paying them entirely, a Norman army would march on their keep, burn it down, build a stone castle on their lands in which a good Norman nobleman would sit for generations. Everyone in England who was not French was unhappy with the French presence. So what does all of that have to do with Robin Hood? Well, Henry II would have two sons that concern the story of Robin Hood and our story today. There was Richard, the older of the two sons, who would go on to become Richard I, King of England, or Richard the Lionheart. Richard the Lionheart has been romanticized throughout the centuries. He wasn't a great king. He was cruel, he was brutal, and he was unfeeling toward common people, especially the people of England. But he was a crusader. He was a war hero in the Third Crusade, and he went on long processions all throughout Europe that ensured his place in song and story as a brave and noble hero. But Richard had a brother, another son of Henry II, another great-grandson of William the Conqueror. His name was John. John's nickname was John Lackland because he lacked land. His father never gave him any. However, when Richard rose up to become the Angevin king, he did give his brother John some lands. Richard gave John Lackland significant lands in both their French and English territories. Those lands included Nottingham. However, Richard did deny his brother Nottingham Castle. All of these lands were kind of a bribe. Richard gave them to his brother right before he went off on crusade. He hoped that John would take the revenues and the authority from these lands and be content. He hoped that John wouldn't, you know, invade England and take the crown. And John even promised his brother Richard that he wouldn't do that. At least, he promised his brother that he would not make a move on England until Richard returned to defend those lands. Which is surprisingly honorable. Of course, as soon as Richard was off fighting in the Holy Land, John invaded England anyway with a French Angevin army. He took London almost immediately and went on to conquer a host of other important lands. Pertinent to our story, in 1191, Prince John captured Nottingham Castle and installed a Sheriff of Nottingham. That gives us Prince John, the Sheriff of Nottingham, and the whole setting of Robin Hood. But none of that stuff, no Prince John, no Sheriff of Nottingham, no King Richard, none of that was included in the early Robin Hood ballads. Prince John and Nottingham weren't added to the Robin Hood tale until the late 16th century, during the reign of Queen Mary Tudor. And there might be some parallels there. Think about the noble King Richard supplanted by his evil brother, that just might catch on among a certain segment of the English populace, while the noble heir to the throne, Elizabeth, had been supplanted by her evil sister, Bloody Mary. You know, it might be a little bit of propaganda. But there is some truth in the tale. Maybe not, you know, Robin Hood and Little John and Friar Tuck and Maid Marian, but in the Sheriff of Nottingham and in Prince John, taxing the people far too much. There was conflict between John and Richard over who would claim the throne of England, but Richard came out on top. 
However, Richard died without an heir, and the heir presumptive was his brother John. However, John had a cousin named Arthur, the Lord of Brittany. Arthur had a better claim to the Angevin throne under Angevin law. However, under Norman law, Prince John had a better claim to the Norman throne. Now, Brittany wasn't part of the Angevin Empire. However, it very much wanted to control the Angevin Empire, perhaps excluding Normandy, which is exactly what Arthur set out to do. However, John did already have castles in England and lands in England. From those castles and lands, he could defend his kingdom, he could raise revenues, and he could raise troops. So he taxed his people heavily. He began to demand military service, and he used coercive means to raise wartime funds. Now everything he did here was kind of within his rights. He had the right to raise emergency funds and levy armies, but that was supposed to be in defense of the Kingdom of England. And you know, Arthur was threatening invasion of England, so he did institute those policies. But Arthur didn't really invade. At least, he didn't invade England. But did Prince John give those funds back and send the troops home since the threat never materialized? Of course not. He sent them to Normandy, where Arthur did invade. And it wasn't just Arthur and Brittany invading Normandy. The king of the Franks, over to the east of Normandy and Anjou, the ancestor of the kings of France, was also invading Normandy. The Angevin Empire, everywhere except England, was being invaded from two sides. Now John fought campaign after campaign in this two-front war in Normandy, but he did so largely with an army made up of English men and English money. And that army was losing. John lost most of his ancestral holdings there in modern France, and many consider this war the end of the Angevin dynasty. They continued to hold on to Aquitaine for a while, but John lost Anjou, therefore should he be an Angevin king. Other historians might wait until about a hundred years later to claim an end of the Angevin line, but still others would claim that we shouldn't refer to the Angevin dynasty at all, that instead we should talk about the Plantagenet dynasty. The house of Plantagenet was, after all, the noble house of King John, of King Richard, of their father Henry, and it would be the house of their heirs who would rule for another century. But still, traditionally, the Angevin dynasty of the House of Anjou and the Plantagenet dynasty are traditionally separated here. Now, since his French lands were lost, John had to lean even harder on the English people. The lands that were the personal property of King John, lands like Nottingham, those were taxed incredibly harshly. Many people in those lands did turn to banditry. In fact, there was a trend that would come into prominence in France about a decade or two later that started during this period. There were groups of brigands that turned into groups of organized brigands, and they turned to practices that we might find familiar on this show. They would march in and capture towns. They would ransack the towns for any goods of value, and then they would hold the town and her people for ransom. Stories like that don't make for pleasant folk tales, like Robin Hood, but these raids did look a lot like what the later buccaneers would do, only these ruffians would travel on horses instead of ships. 
However, those kind of raids taught these brigands the art of warfare, and they put those skills to use when they turned into free companies of mercenaries. These free companies would sell their services to whatever English lord might need them, and eventually they moved over to the continent where they became some of the most elite military forces in operation. The White Company, which was led by a knight and nobleman at one point, famously rode into battle wearing white capes and white painted armor, and they're probably the basis for the Golden Company in Game of Thrones. But many of these groups that became some of the most famous military organizations in Europe, well, they originated in regions that originally belonged to King John. Many of those groups began as parties of highwaymen in places like Nottingham that operated usually in forests. There were almost certainly bandits operating in Sherwood Forest during the time of King John who were being fought by the Sheriff of Nottingham. And, to be fair, they probably did use bows because, you know, swords were expensive. But it wasn't just the lands that belonged to King John that were suffering— the rest of the kingdom was suffering as well. Those quasi-legal practices of levying emergency funds and troops, well, that was happening everywhere, and they were beginning to upset people. John's support in England was waning. The common people had never liked John, and the Anglo-Saxon gentry had never cared much for the Normans either, but now the Norman aristocracy was beginning to turn against King John. One of these, a man named Robert Fitzwalter, who should not be confused with his father, Walter Fitzrobert, he raised a coalition of barons, and that coalition went into open rebellion against the king. That coalition gained three powerful allies against King John. Arthur, the Duke of Brittany, who was warring against King John, and Louis VIII, King of France, who was warring against King John, happily welcomed these Norman nobles in their war against Normandy and the Norman king. They were joined, though, by King Alexander II of Scotland, who also held lands in northern England and could technically be considered one of those barons. But imagine that strategic and tactical position from the point of view of King John. You hold England and almost all of western France. However, Scotland and northern England are in rebellion. Brittany, a large dukedom in northwest France that you do not control, is allied with the Franks who hold all of eastern France. Normandy is the only stretch of coastline that connects England to all of your southern Angevin holdings, and Normandy is getting pinched. It is in danger of disappearing and separating your two kingdoms. All the while, you are facing invasion from the Scots, and then a coalition of barons within England declare war on you. And these aren't some up-jumped Anglo-Saxon earls. No, these are Norman barons that supported you in your claim for the throne, that had supported you in your war against Arthur of Brittany and Louis of France. These were men who you needed on your side. But John had been spitting on them for years. So these barons stopped paying their taxes and started capturing castles. Strategically speaking, it was kind of like... You know how when you overdraft at the bank, some banks will charge you money for that overdraft? 
It's like, oh, I didn't have any money, so now I don't get lunch. Now, thanks to the bank, I have extra negative money, so thanks for that. That's what was happening to King John here. He was expecting to get his lunch, his taxes, and his soldiers. But instead, not only did he not get his lunch, he was charged extra in that those money and men went to take more away from him. So King John agreed to meet with the rebellious barons on neutral ground in the year 1215. They brought a peace agreement entitled the Articles of the Barons, which is the first of what are called the Great Charters. The first Great Charter was merely a list of demands that defined the king's responsibilities and put some limits on his power. However, it also included a clause in which a coalition of 25 barons would have the legal right and responsibility of regal oversight. Should the king break his commitments, those 25 barons were required by law to take his castles and his lands away until the royal rule-breaking was rectified. Not only that, the 25 who were to make up that body in 1215 were the most radical among the barons. All of this was a problem for the king. John did not like this. However, the barons demanded that he sign the agreement if he wanted any sort of peace within England. John didn't have much choice here, so he signed the Articles of the Barons, and the oaths of fealty from his rebellious barons were re-sworn. And now that he had a moment's peace, John was able to turn around and deal with his enemies on the continent. And in doing so, he immediately broke faith with the barons. He continued his despotic ways despite signing that agreement. The charter was way too much for King John to accept. He never intended to adhere to the terms. He just needed the time that signing would bring him to deal with affairs in Normandy. All of this was an incredibly dumb decision on the part of King John, but it wasn't one that he would ever have to deal with personally. Shortly after signing these Articles of the Barons, this great charter, King John died. But think about this. All the other English kings have numbers. William I, all of the Edwards and Henrys and Richards and Georges, they just go on and on. Even the Stuarts get two Jameses and two Charleses. But even though John is the most common name in the English language, there was never a King John II of England. No one wants the stain of the name of King John. That's, that's a sign of a bad king. His son Henry III took up the throne and revisited the Great Charter. His advisors, who were really in control of the nation, negotiated for an end to the Barons' Rebellion on the condition that the king would sign the charter. They came close, but that oversight body was a sticking point. The negotiations failed. The barons, the rebellious barons, invited King Louis VIII of France to invade England, which he did. And remember this event as well, in much the same way that we should remember the story of the Empress Matilda, we should remember that these rebellious barons invited a foreign king to invade England and hopefully to sit on the throne. This event set another precedent in the history of the English monarchy. Both of these, Matilda and King Louis VIII of France, would have huge repercussions down the road. King Louis would capture London, 
and he was declared King of England, but he was never crowned King of England, and he never captured Nottingham either, which, if today's episode is any indication, is a sign of eventual victory. However, he was doing well, and it looked like he just might capture England completely, but he had to return back home to France to deal with a few troubles back there, and he realized when he was back on the continent that his own base of support was weakening. He knew that if he returned back to England to press his claim, he might lose France in the process. So he stayed and gave up his claim on England. He acknowledged that he had never been the rightful king and moved on. Louis, leaving the fray, the backbone of the rebellious barons was broken. Not only did France pull out, Brittany pulled out of the English war as well. And fighting on the continent, involving Brittany, France and the Angevin kingdoms, that would continue for, you know, a little while, but it wouldn't continue in England. After the war ended, King Henry revisited the Great Charter, with an eye to signing it and hopefully bringing peace. This Great Charter, the Charter of 1217, is better known by its Latin name, Magna Carta. Now, the Magna Carta is not some kind of proto-declaration of independence, although it's often painted that way. In the Russell Crowe Robin Hood movie, Magna Carta was a document written during the reign of Henry II that was written by a stonemason and proposed ideas of freedom and equality. And that's not at all what the Magna Carta was. Those are Enlightenment-era ideas that wouldn't come back around for another 500 years. This was a document written by noblemen that limited the powers of the king. But it wasn't in favor of the people. Nothing like that. No, those powers of the king were limited in favor of the nobles. It's all about the nobles keeping the income they could squeeze out of the serfs rather than the king getting that income. There's some military service stuff, and then there's a bunch about forests, which was kind of an important deal at the time. That was all about game and timber, and the nobles ceded those rights to the king, which, that absolutely screwed over the common people. People who relied on those forests for game and timber, well, now they would be executed for taking either of those things. Both elements are tied in to the Robin Hood and the Sherwood Forest myth. And the story of Robin Hood and the Magna Carta are closely intertwined all throughout. Robin Hood, the figure of legend, and the Magna Carta, an actual legal document, they share a place, a almost a place of myth, in the independent anti-monarchist mythology of England. However, the bit about the forests in Magna Carta was rectified by Edward I, or Edward the Longshanks. He modified Magna Carta into the version that would eventually be codified into English law to revise that bit about the forests. He needed to appease the people to pay for a war. Now, Edward I, the Longshanks, was the grandson of King John, he was the fifth Plantagenet, and he was the great-great-great-great-great-grandson of William the Conqueror. And his policies would set the stage for the next century of English royal politics. Edward the Longshanks was well known for his policies intended to extend English authority into Scotland. That's the story of William Wallace and Robert the Bruce. Just go watch Braveheart, only remember that they didn't wear kilts. But all of that, the whole Scottish story, was a sideshow to what was happening on the continent. Edward was continuing his grandfather's attempt to reconquer their ancestral lands in France. This war had been ongoing for some time. It's the war that Edward I 
modified the Magna Carta to pay for. It was called the 100 Years' War, and it dominated European politics for over a century. And in some ways, it minimized that mythological English anti-monarchist sentiment. Perhaps the Magna Carta had quite a bit to do with that as well, but more than anything else, it brought together the Anglo-Saxon nobles and the Norman nobles, who were at this point a uniquely English nobility. However, Magna Carta would occasionally be cited whenever a king overstepped their power. It came up for Edward I, and it popped up every few Plantagenet kings. Some noble might say, hey, wait a second here, remember the Magna Carta? But it never came about in a truly consequential way. By the time the last Plantagenet king, Richard II, died in the year 1337, Magna Carta was little more than an old, outdated relic. This might not have been a great thing. See, Richard II died without an heir. And they had to actually go back a couple of generations to find an heir that was suitable, and they found him in the house of Lancaster. Edward of Lancaster was a legitimate heir to both the Norman line of William the Conqueror and the Plantagenet line of Henry II. Of course, Edward of Lancaster was not the only legitimate potential heir. Another noble family, the House of York, also had close ties to both the Norman and Plantagenet lines, and the House of York wanted the throne for themselves. This resulted in a series of civil wars that immediately followed the Hundred Years' War, called the Wars of the Roses. Now, we don't need to talk much about this era, much like we didn't really need to talk about the Hundred Years' War. However, a quick bit of background. Game of Thrones, for example, was famously influenced by the Wars of the Roses. Houses Lancaster and York are mirrored by Houses Lannister and Stark. With that in mind, we can brush right past the Wars of the Roses and assume that they involved dragons and ice zombies. But actually, Game of Thrones does kind of play out like the end of the Wars of the Roses. The real wars ended when Henry VII, a nobleman with both Yorkish and Lancastrian parents, ascended the throne, brought those houses together, and became the first of the Tudor dynasty. His son, Henry VIII, of course, reminds one of Robert Baratheon, large, drunk, jovial, and fond of executions. His diminutive son took up the throne after his death, but that son... Oh, well... I had a joke here about the Sept of Baylor burning up, but that seems in poor taste in light of what just happened to the Cathedral of Notre Dame. However, Henry VIII's daughter, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, married a foreign king and terrorized England, which could be a mirror for Cersei Lannister. And Henry's other daughter, Elizabeth, was a beloved and beautiful ruler that never married and oversaw a war that ended in a long and just peace. What I'm saying is, Cersei dies, Danny gets the throne, and Jon Snow sails off with Theon and Arya to find out what's west of Westeros. They find the New World, commit some dashing piracy, and circumnavigate the globe. I'm just saying here, Jon Snow is a secret Targaryen, right? Targaryens love dragons, right? Dragons are also called Drakes, Sir Francis Drake. You see what I'm getting at? It's been in front of our noses the whole time. But that's enough Game of Thrones talk. During the years of the Tudor dynasty, there wasn't much talk about the Magna Carta either. It was an artifact, and an unimportant artifact, because those were mostly good years for England. But Elizabeth died without an heir, and the House of Stuart ascended the throne. And with that event, everything changed. Now, we have talked at length 
several times, in fact, about the reigns of James and Charles I. We don't need to talk about the English Civil War and Cromwell and the Protectorate. Not again. However, we begin hearing all this buzz about the Magna Carta once again. And looking at the circumstances, it really does make sense. Charles levied heavy taxes that were technically within his rights, strictly speaking, but they stretched the bounds of legality. He used emergency wartime powers to build his wealth and his strength and his navy. But he used them when there wasn't an actual wartime emergency, and he did it over and over again. You can see the direct parallels between the actions of King Charles I and the actions of the old Norman king, King John. Noblemen, and they weren't called barons any longer, but they began talking about the Magna Carta once again, and they began looking at what they saw as their potential legal responsibility to check his power. But times had changed in England. A couple of centuries had gone by. The religion had changed, and the scope of royal power had changed. Things weren't going to be as simple as capturing Nottingham Castle any longer. Which, of course, led to the Civil War, a king beheaded, and the English monarchy ended. It led to a theocratic military dictatorship, which sounds a lot like a monarchy, but then, of course, the Stuarts were restored to the throne. King Charles II reigned supreme. The Merry Monarch wore the crown. Which catches us up to our current place in the story. And at this place in the story, even when the Merry Monarch sat the throne, the tales of Robin Hood were more popular than ever. They had gone from simple ballads of a roving bandit in the woodlands of England to political fables about the overthrow of the structures of power, about the empowerment of the common people. And those stories were directly tied to Magna Carta. And those stories of Robin Hood reminded people of why the Magna Carta was written in the first place. This wasn't some ancient object to be discarded. It was, at this moment, deeply important to the English people. It reminded them that a king's power was not absolute. However, two kings at this moment, Louis XIV of France and the current King of England, were working together to see that absolute monarchy continued indefinitely. The myths of Robin Hood, the stories of Magna Carta, and the legend of the Empress Matilda, they were all at the forefront of the minds of the English people. And with every passing day, it seemed that the Stuart monarch became more and more a tyrant. Next time we're going to talk about the decline of the House of Stuart and the road that leads us to the Glorious Revolution. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has given us a rating or a review, wherever it is you listen to the show. Everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family. And everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. So thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly should. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.